ready, Bernie? You know it. All right, let's do it. Welcome, everyone, to Wolverheme Happy Hour. I'm Anthony Personati. And I'm Bernie Marini. We are hematology clinical pharmacists, and this is a podcast where we drink and we nerd out about data. Welcome back, everybody, to Wolverheme Happy Hour. Uh, today, we are going to talk about a disease state that we've never talked about on this podcast before. And so with that, we had to bring in two expert guests. Bernie, who would we bring? So we are very lucky today to have Dr. Victoria Nashar with us today, who is a clinical pharmacist specialist in hematology at the University of Michigan. She is our resident lymphoma and myeloma expert. She did her pharmacy schooling at the University of Buffalo in her PGY-1 and PGY-2 residencies at the University of Michigan. And she currently works <laughs> in the, the lymphoma and myeloma clinics at the University of Michigan. And our second guest today is Dr. Tysel Phillips, who is an associate clinical professor and expert lymphoma specialist at City of Hope. Uh, he earned his medical degree from Rush University, followed by residency in internal medicine uh, at Cook County in Chicago. Then he did his fellowship uh, in oncology and hematology at University Hospitals in Cleveland. And then before joining City of Hope, he worked with Victoria in our lymphoma clinic and was our lymphoma guru at the University of Michigan before he was plucked away to the beautiful <laughs> lands of California. <laughs> welcome. Welcome, Tysel. Welcome, Victoria. We're so happy to have you on. No, thanks for the invitation. All right, so guys, uh, we like to drink on this podcast because it's not just about like learning; it's also about having fun. And uh, so, Victoria, what's your uh, drink of the day? I'm uh, drinking what you would call a grown-up vodka Red Bull. This is an espresso martini. <laughs> nice, I like that a it's, lot. You know, if the vodka Red Bull had a job in a 401k. <laughs> <laughs> Tysol, what about you? Uh, I, I will be sipping on coffee um, <laughs> this, this early morning. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna spice this up a little bit. Tysol is drinking coffee mixed with some grappa or moonshine. Uh, Bernie, what are you drinking? <laughs> <laughs> I have another beer from Founders from my trip to Grand Rapids. Nice. It's a Four Giants in the Haze of Destiny Imperial IPA. I don't know if you can see the can, but it looks pretty sweet. Uh, and it's like nine percent. And it's a tall boy. And it's probably going to make me take a nap after the podcast. Well, then you, you can drink some of uh, Victoria's espresso martinis. Perfect. Excellent. So I'm drinking some Prosecco uh, just because I'm, I'm happy that both Victoria and uh, Tysel are on the podcast. So I'm celebrating. Uh, Bernie, what do we got on the agenda today? I said it was something we've never talked mm. about. It's not leukemia. <laughs> so everybody who's been mad that we've only been talking about leukemia... <laughs> This is the episode for you. We are going to be talking lymphoma. And specifically, we're going to dive into the world of bispecific antibodies and how we're going to integrate these into our practice. So we're going to talk about everything about bispecifics in lymphoma. It's going to be exciting. Before we dive in, uh, obviously to our audience, uh, we've never talked about lymphoma. So we got we to gotta provide you with a little bit of background. And so what, that's why we brought uh, Dr. Phillips here to tell us how do you treat uh, advanced DLBCL. Poorly, no. Um, <laughs> so, uh, funny enough that you you mentioned that. So, uh, the standard of care, at least for the most part, is still RCHOP, but apparently our friends at the NCCN guidelines have added a category one designation for 
Archip Cola, uh, based on Polaris. So, you know, just to give a little bit of feedback, that was a study with Archip versus Archip Cola, randomized phase three study, which uh, at the initial publication suggested a PFS benefit, especially in certain subsets for Archip Cola without an overall survival benefit. Uh, we still do not have FDA approval for this agent, but uh, as of January of 2023, it is now an NCCN category one designation for advanced stage patients. So you have your options of the Oba True RCHOP, but also RCHIP Polo for this patient population at this point. So, And, and Bernie and I won't poke into this any further for Not now, yet. just because we could uh, create an entire podcast on, on just that. So um, so RCHOP or RCHIP Polo. And then what about, are there any other disease states where you might uh, divert away from uh, RCHOP or not disease states, but any subtypes uh, that you or others might deviate from the standard? I mean, so the, the biggest one is obviously our double hit patients. I mean, ideally, we are okay. still treating patients based on uh, the retrospective study by Petrich et al. So we are given our dose adjusted epoch, uh, even though, you know, from the motherland, Canada, uh, there <laughs> that's that. Uh, potentially that there is no benefit to giving these patients our dose adjusted epoch and that our chop is uh, perfectly sufficient for most of these patients. So, um, you know, it's kind of a, a catch-22 if we made practice changing recommendations off a retrospective study and we haven't really prospectively sort of ventured into this area much more. So, but yeah, I mean, that would be the only patient population that we probably do something different is the double hit patients. The double expressors doesn't seem to make a difference. EPOG versus RCHOP doesn't seem to have a, a very substantial difference. So RCHOP is still standard for that uh, because of the increased risk profile with EPOG. I think that was such a fair assessment. Um, and I, th I think you provided uh, both perspectives, right? And I think there are multiple perspectives on this. Uh, but for all the trainees out there, RCHOP's a standard of care. Now, Victoria, let's say you start RCHOP in a patient and six months later, uh, the patient uh, is uh, essentially refractory slash an early relapse. Uh, the standard of care has recently changed too here, right? Uh, what are we doing now? Yeah, so in a patient who's primary refractory to first-line treatment or who relapses early in which the definition of these studies used a relapse within the first 12 months after first-line treatment, there were several studies that looked at using CAR-T cell therapy in the second line for these primary refractory early relapsers. I think you could debate on, you know, if patients still demonstrate chemosensitivity in the second line, regardless of when they relapse or not, if they should still go to an autologous stem cell transplant. But the standard of care for these patients, regardless of response shown to second line salvage therapy, is to take them straight to CAR T cell therapy. So as you guys can see in the audience, uh, both frontline and even uh, now relapse, it's, it's clear as mud, right? There's no controversies whatsoever. Um, so, so that's an early relapse slash primary refractory. Um, let's say that same RCHOP patient is now relapsing, you know, three, four years later. What is the standard of care there? Yeah, it, so it honestly really depends too on if a patient is a, is a candidate for a transplant based on uh, age or comorbidities. The same thing with CAR T cell therapy is true too. But if they are a candidate, you really need to determine if their disease is chemosensitive. So some form of platinum-based salvage chemotherapy could be RDHAP, RICE, uh, depending upon cell of origin. And then if they demonstrate any chemosensitivity, which another controversy could be, you know, what the definition of chemosensitive disease really is. But really, to me, it's if they demonstrate any response, so partial response or a complete response, then you would take them to an autologous stem cell transplant. 
about seven controversies right there. At um, least. So, so let's say that um, uh, you're doing DHAP, they go in an auto transplant, uh, now they're relapsing. I mean, so for third line and beyond, um, I guess really a lot depends on patients of age and fitness. Um, well, I guess I should clarify that. In the era of CAR-T, apparently there is not a cutoff for CAR-T. Um, so, um, as long as they're breathing, they're still eligible. For CAR-T. <laughs> um, but for some reason they are not eligible for CAR-T in this situation. I mean, ideally there's Lintafa, uh, which obviously had an improvement in patients, uh, especially those in second line, uh, versus third line and beyond. Uh, even though this past ash, the real world data for Lintafa was not very, uh, encouraging, I think to say the least. Um, there is still, uh, BR Pola, um, but. Ideally, if we're using pole in the front line, then ideally, where is this role in you know third line and beyond at this point, um, especially because of the neuropathy with the cumulative dose. Uh, and then there's long cast tuximab, which is the other uh, drug antibody conjugate, CD19 drug antibody conjugate. So that is the option we have there. And then I would say in next couple of months, we'll probably have two bispecific antibodies, uh, which will be epcaridumab and golfidumab. We'll both likely get approved and relapse refractory DOBCL for third line and beyond. Uh, that will probably make the bigger difference, especially for those in a community setting as we get a little bit more comfortable uh, giving these agents in the community setting, just because uh, they still have CRS and ICANs, but less severity and much less frequency than what we see with CAR-T, uh, at least with AxiCell. Uh, there's probably some improvement in Lysacell and uh, TCCell, I guess, is the issue of its effectiveness compared to the other two. So. So it sounds like we have a, quite a bit of options for patients, but clearly um, there's still an unmet need because these patients are not cured with Taflen, they're not cured with Polabr, they're not cured with Lancastuximab. They might be cured with CAR-T. Uh, our experience hasn't been uh, nearly as positive as what the published literature suggests. Um, so um, long story short is we need new therapies and Tysel have already stolen some of our thunder here of the bispecifics are. are coming. No, no, no. Steal the thunder. Steal it all. Um, that's why you guys came here. Um, bispecifics are coming. Uh, we need to talk about them. Mm -hmm. Bernie, why don't you uh, give us a little bit of an overview of what the heck a bispecific is? Uh, mm. How are these ones any different than our first FDA-approved mm -hmm. uh, bispecific uh, T-cell engager, blenitumumab, and maybe go through some of the constructs and this and that? Yeah, so we'll, we'll just go through the basics. So Bispecific antibodies, uh, as the name implies, they target two different antigens. So in contrast to a normal monoclonal antibody where you're just targeting one epitope, one antigen, one cell, with these you're targeting two cells. And it's basically like, I like to describe it as it's Tinder for your T cells. It's playing matchmaker. <laughs> yes. It's bringing your T cells into contact with these DLBCL cells or leukemia cells or whatever the heck you're playing matchmaker with. There's a lot of different ways to do that, and it's pretty hard to make an antibody that targets two different things. And when you do that, when you make this bispecific antibody with two different targets, you have different combinations of heavy and light chains. Um, and this creates the problem in manufacturing of getting mismatches of heavy and light change, which compromises the purity and compromises their ability to bind to both targets. So there's basically two main ways you can make these bispecific antibodies. The first way is what we saw with blindatumumab, which many of you are familiar with because that was the first one that was FDA approved and it's the one that we've talked about 
on this podcast probably too much. Um, and this is where you just take the, the antigen binding fragments, the single chain, um, the, the variable regions that bind to the two antigens and you just fuse them together. So these are things that are like bites or darts and they lack that FC portion that regular monoclonal antibodies have. And because of that, they have a very short half-life because it lacks that domain that keeps them circulating in the plasma. The other way you can manufacture these is you can make them have full-length IgG-like structures or some variation of that with an FC portion like regular monoclonal antibodies. And the advantage of this is that it prolongs the half-life because on that um, FC portion are very important receptors um, like the, the neonatal FC receptor. And, and what these do is these prolong the half-life of these antibodies. And so that's kind of the second type of bispecific antibody. And most of the bispecific antibodies in lymphoma are the second group. And one of the downsides to having an FC portion is, uh, as you all know with antibodies, FC portions are what bring effector cells um, like macrophages, NK cells, into the microenvironment. Um, we don't necessarily want that. Um, and so what they actually do when they manufacture these is they, they mutate the FC portions to silence the FC portion. So you only get the increased half-life. You don't get antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. Um, and there's a couple of different technologies uh, that, ha that, that create these antibodies. Um, this is like PhD level that I don't fully understand, but there's knob and hole technologies. There's you know the head-to-tail fusions. There's controlled FAB arm exchange. Mosinatuzumab is uh, a knob and hole. Uh, glofinumab did a head-to-tail with a two-to-one ratio. Epcaridumab was the controlled FAB arm exchange. Clinically, does any of this matter? I think some of it may matter, and I say that only in the sense of of the three that we named, Mosinatuzumab probably is the least effective mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to aggressive lymphomas. Yeah, uh, seems much more better suited. Um, for indolent lymphomas and probably has a better safety profile than the other two additional agents as well as far as incidence and risk and severity of CRS. Um, I mean, when you come to looking at glofitimab and epcaridumab, the other two you mentioned, I mean, I think that's like splitting hairs. I don't necessarily yeah. know if there's a clinical difference per se uh, based on the design of the antibody. I think that any issues we see at this point is probably based on how it's administered uh, and the doses they've chosen to start with. It's probably played a bigger part in what we see in the clinic. And I think the two-to-one binding of glofitimab sounds sexy, but I agree <laughs> that I don't think clinically it matters. I think it's a lot of hand-waving right now. So we, we talked about mosinatuzumab, glofitimab, epcaridumab. Uh, Dr. Nishar, there are two others that are sort of in late stages of development as well. Uh, what are those two? Yeah, there are two others, um, plamotamab and then odorneximab. Um, they have a little bit different technology as well. I think just different company, different technology, um, and probably a little bit later in the game for aggressive lymphomas, like you mentioned, than epcaridumab and glofitimab. So let's talk through some of the data then. So uh, mosentuzumab is the first one that we can probably talk about because that's probably has the, the biggest sort of range of diseases it's been exposed to. So in their phase one study, they pretty much treated everything, uh, marginal zone, MCL, DLBCL, 
I think there's a few Waldorf's patients and fair number of follicular lymphoma patients in there. Um, so from that data set, they also then exposed mozentuzumab has been combined with CHOP. Uh, it's been combined with Chipola. It's been combined with Polutuzumab. Uh, the CHOP part and the Chipola were at least were in the relapsed refractory, but then also exposed in a frontline setting. Uh, the Mosin-Polin was also refra relapsed refractory, but also they explored that in an elderly unfit patient population for frontline patients. So that probably has a busy, busy, biggest exposure from that. Um, the PFS and the overall response rate, at least from what we have from the original study, was most impressive in patients with uh, follicular lymphoma. So uh, more recently, uh, they published their cumulative data in the phase two patients about Buddy et al., uh, where they looked at all of their data from um, those uh, follicular lymphoma patients, um, at which point, you know, uh, the data from that uh, was fairly, I guess, impressive, and but still, again, a bit still premature compared to some other studies, but with a fairly impressive overall response rate around 70-80%, uh, and the PFS benefit there extended beyond what we would have seen, at least with some of the other agents like the PIK3 inhibitors and EZH2 inhibitors. Um, I think where it lacked it was just an overall response rate and and uh, progression-free survival in MCL patients, uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patients, which I think spurred the interest in glofitimab and its two-to-one binding as a better sort of partner for aggressive lymphomas. Um, even though our experience with, you know, Mosin plus CHOP, uh, at least our personal experience, it seemed like it synergized pretty well with chemo, even in these aggressive patients. So, um, but I think that sort of, pigeonhole that into an endolent lymphoma sort of scenario and the recent approval obviously is third line beyond follicular lymphoma. Mm -hmm. um, the other drugs, epcaritimab and glofitimab, both uh, appear to have very impressive overall response rates. I wish I could have actually got my whole hands on the slides again from glofitimab from the recent ASH meeting where they did uh, uh, demonstrate more prolonged uh, progression-free survival even beyond uh, the first couple of years. And in these patients, they're not on treatment. So it seems like the patients who got a CR, a fair number of those patients remain, remained in CR even without active therapy. Because again, um, after about eight months of treatment, these patients are not on treatment. So uh, it appeared that the responses obtained, at least the patients who obtained a CR were you know, somewhat durable in this patient population, which is, is encouraging uh, with a fairly decent overall response rate for the relapsed refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. I guess what we run into is that in patients who were CAR-T exposed, the overall response rate, and I'm sure the CR rate and the progress-free survival are not as uh, impressive in that patient population, plus possibly indicating some issues we may see in sort of slotting these drugs as post-CAR-T saviors, because they just may not be. I think we have to be very nuanced in sort of how we identify patients who may respond to CAR-T, sorry, to bispecifics after CAR-T. As my assumption is, those who blow through CAR-T are going to blow through by specifics. So they probably just are not sensitive to T-cell-directed therapies. You bring up a, a good point about CAR-T because uh, when I, uh, I'm not an expert in this, but when I'm reading, you know, some reviews from the experts, uh, they're really touting that these agents um, can potentially uh, still have high response rates post-CAR-T. Um, is that true mainly in certain disease subsets? Like, is that true just in follicular or just in DLBCL? Um, and then I, I, I see them mention high response rates are maintained, but then they make no mention at all about progression-free survival or any like hard endpoints. Yeah. So I think the only real data we've seen so far has come out with the 
of what's the Steve Schuster presentation when he presented Mosin Tuzumab after CAR T failures. Um, I think from that paper, uh, he was able to demonstrate some rescue uh, of patients uh, who failed CAR T. But again, that was a very small subset of patients. And again, um, the question it still raises is, and I'll be honest, from that presentation, I didn't even you know pay hone in on that is. How many are CAR T responders who lose it and benefit versus truly mm -hmm. CAR T non-responsive? Yeah. Because I think that's the biggest key. I think the patients who are CAR T responders who lose a response, I think those are the patients you can salvage with biospecific. Mm -hmm. Again, you can probably replenish or refresh the CAR T cells that may be there, and then I still you still get more T cell directed therapy. But those patients who are refractory to CAR T, I think very few of those patients will ever really respond to biospecifics, and are probably not the patients that. You want to identify saying that, you know, five specifics are going to save CAR-T failures. I don't think that's really going to happen to majority of these patients. I think those true CAR-T refractory patients will be five specific refractory patients. Which were probably not included on those studies because they progress way too fast to get them on studies. And that's what I think is hard to capture in all these studies. Like, they're yeah. all just, you know, single arm phase one, twos that, you know, show us response rates and not knowing, like, Oh, these CAR T patients were those that were completely refractory to CAR T versus, you know, relapsed after. They you don't get into those details in these small numbers of patients. Just for the audience's benefit, um, what kind of numbers are we looking at here in yeah. terms of response rates, CR rates with the different products? They're all fairly similar. What kind of numbers would we be looking at uh, in these trials? Dr. Nashar, I know you put these these numbers to memory, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I, I sure did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it, it really depends, too, because a lot of these studies had mixed populations. Mm -hmm. um, but I think response rates, maybe 50%, 60%, depending on the study, with a CR rate of 20 to 30%. Mm -hmm. And they do have some data that indicate in those who can obtain a CR, responses sure. seem durable, right, with responses ongoing at two years. But it's going to be a very, very small percentage of patients that actually get into a CR. And I agree. I think patients that blow through CAR-T are a completely different patient population. I do think they have um, some data looking at how long post-CAR-T some of these patients were. And some of them were quite early on post-CAR-T, like within the first 60 days or you know, first 100 days, but I still think that's different than the pa a lot of the patients that we've had that are just completely refractory to CAR-T. Like they don't even have time to recover from cell infusion and they're progressing and blowing through. Um, and we have seen a lot of those patients in our experience. So I still think there's a lot of unknowns um, where these will fit in, if they will really be post-CAR-T, if they will replace CAR-T in the future. Um, but it's just such small data and small studies right now to really make any conclusions, I think. And, and I think this highlights sort of the danger of just sort of looking at those top line results slash, you know, I'm not an expert either. And when I reviewed this or, you know, was looking at review articles, I saw kind of a similar thing. Overall response rates were 50-ish percent. And what everyone quotes is, oh, these responses are maintained in people post-CAR-T. They look the same. But without digging into those details like like you have, we're not able to capture that nuance that these patients that blow through and, and don't respond, they're not going to be the ones who respond to these bispecific antibodies. They're, they're not responsive to T-cell directed therapy, whether it's through Tinder style or actually infusing the T-cells. 
they're just not going to respond. So I think I think that's really important when when we're interpreting these just single arm phase twos and trying to like cross trial compare. How does this drug look? How does this drug look? It's it's definitely a danger. I also think, you know, if you have a patient blowing through CAR-T and you're going to start a bispecific, something we haven't touched on yet is a lot of these or all of them do step up dosing. And so even if you start a bispecific right away, right, by the time you get to full dose, it could be a week or or even longer depending upon the product. I mean, it's such a good point because uh, as you know, as pharmacists, we uh, show up, you know, to rounds and, and uh, you know, people like Tysol immediately berate us of, I got this patient coming, they're rapidly progressing, they're coming from an outside institution, I need GlowFit right now. And it's like, hold on, cool your jets. Do you really think that this patient's going to benefit when you're like, you're, you're, you're transporting them over via helicopter? You really think that GlowFit's the right option for this if patient? If you can't right? even wait until I drink my coffee to ask me for this drug, then it's probably not the right drug for the patient. Uh, but it, but but the way that you described, like, I didn't even think about the dose escalation. I was just thinking like, you either. know, immunotherapy going to take some time to work, but like, no, no, even the dose escalation is going to take time to even get to the effective dr uh, dose. Um, you, these are probably not the best agents for rapidly progressing patients, but you know, what is, what is a good therapy for a rapidly progressing patient um, that's multiply refractory to multiple lines of chemotherapy? I have no idea. Um, uh, Tyson, um, you enrolled, uh, geez, probably what, 40, 50 patients on, on a, ver a variety of, of uh, bispecific uh, trials. Did you enroll um, any patients that kind of fit that, that, that sort of phenotype of rapidly progressing? Uh, and if so, uh, you know, I know these are anecdotes, but how, how did they do? So the only ones we enrolled, those would be the post-CAR T failure patients. And across the board, those patients probably did very poorly. So, we also I mean, had a lot of primary refractory patients that we tried to bridge yeah. to CAR or transplant. And, they, and they blew through it too. They blew through it with chemo. Additionally. So this wasn't just right. bi-specifics. It was bi-specifics plus chemo and they still didn't respond. So... Yep. I think that that's just the nuance of it. I mean, these rapidly progressing patients probably, um, no matter what we sort of do um, in certain situations, I mean, I don't think the right answer is really very clear. I mean, I mean, I guess if you had to put a gun in my head, I would say, I mean, these are the type of patients you probably want to treat with Lanka or, you know, uh, polar BR. But yep. I mean, the problem is you're trying to get to CAR-T, you don't want to use bendamustine. So that sort of put a, a damper there. And, um, yep. Irrespective of people feel about it, polituzumab is not a very good drug as a single agent, I don't think, for aggressive lymphomas. True. Um, I think it's good in partnership. I don't think it's as a single agent. It's a very good drug because of the changes needed to be made to the drug to sort of get it to be less toxic. Everything that you guys are describing, we've experienced this, uh, what, f it's been, what, six, seven, eight, yeah. nine years since blinitumumab was FDA approved, right? Everybody's yeah. like, oh, blinitumumab, you know, I want to use it in everybody, rapidly progressors, blah, blah, blah. And it took some time for people to get burned for those patients that are coming in with 80, 90% blasts for us to learn that bispecifics are probably not the best options for these rapidly progressing patients. So, Bernie, what would we do in those patients? We'd cool them off with chemotherapy, give them a cycle of chemo, kind of like what Tysel's suggesting is like, give them, give them a cycle or two of Lanka. And then maybe when their disease is more indolent, you mop up, you know, residual disease with, in our case was blinitumumab, but in your case, maybe a bispecific for those patients. But, um, 
Yeah, a lot of parallels that I'm seeing in leukemia. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, unfortunately, it is, it is a lot of parallels even beyond the uh, 7 plus 3 R-Trop jokes. But, um, <laughs> That's true. Good point. Yeah, I, I think sequencing, I, I guess, and I'm take, stepping outside an academic center, I think sequencing and how you approach these patients, uh, I think, will be very different from what we typically do in academic centers just because of options we have. And, you know, sometimes options cloud our sort of decision-making and, uh, and how we approach certain situations versus just being very straightforward. And plus, clinical trials always makes it very difficult because, you know, there's always these restrictions about what we can and cannot give in the lead-up to studies, which, and it really selects out very, very different patients than what we see in everyday clinical practice because these patients you describe, for the most part, aren't making clinical trials. Um, just because, again, the, the disease blowing through, the time you do screening and everything else, um, the patient is obviously not the same this week as it was at the time you actually get to the point of treatment. Yeah, so that's a yeah, great it's, point. It's certainly going to be a learning curve if and when these drugs get approved, where we learn from real-world data and experiences what these patients are that will respond look like. Um, I, I thought that was fascinating in reading these papers was they don't do a great job of breaking down like subsets who do well, subsets who don't do well. The focus is hyper-focused on overall response rates are the same in CAR-T patients. That's the focus. <laughs> but you don't break down, you know, in these rapidly progressing patients, what does this look like? And people with huge disease burden, what does these look like? And with Blinn, we had the luxury of, we had some of that preliminary data early on, or at least in the studies, they kind of hinted at those things. Mm -hmm. And then in practice, we sort of learned it as we went. And maybe that's going to be the same learning curve in, in lymphoma. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Bernie, you you're kind of uh, paralleling to CAR T and how yeah. like papers are suggesting, you know, similar response rates, whatever. Um, but I think there are two major differences, um, and we'll get Dr. Nashar and Dr. Phillips's take on this. But I think there are two major differences with CAR T. Is right now, I, in theory, CAR T is curative intent, right? There there are cures with CAR T in theory. Um, Right now, based off of the data with bispecifics, I, I don't know if there's long-term responders, but I'll, I'll, I'll turn that over to you guys. And then the second thing is toxicity. Absolutely, the toxicities are very different. The cytokine release syndrome is much less with these bispecifics. These are safer drugs to be giving to patients. The neurotoxicity is very, very low. Um, so I guess maybe we'll touch on the first part of uh, Dr. Nishar and Dr. Phillips. Are there long-term responders? Or can we say that we potentially can cure patients or we don't know yet? I don't think you can say right now that you can cure, but there are definitely, it seems, in this, these small subsets of patients that have been studied, long-term responders, in that those are, those are patients who obtained a CR and have ongoing response at two years. Again, though, I don't I think it's too soon to say that you can cure and we haven't even talked about differences of the bispecifics some of these are indefinite therapy some are looking at looking at fixed duration and so I think even in patients with these long-term responses that are on indefinite therapy even talking about well can you stop can you take a treatment break I still think that we you know have no idea and a lot of the protocols, I think Tyson would agree, a lot of the protocols for indefinite therapy didn't have any clauses built in to, you know, well, what if the response lasts several years? Can we take a drug break and come back to it? Um, so I think too soon to tell. And I, that's why I think right now when these come, these agents, when they come to market for aggressive lymphomas, 
will have to put them behind CAR T-cell therapy unless the patient is not a candidate for CAR T-cell therapy or you don't have access to CAR T-cell therapy just because of the fact that maybe you can get a cure with CAR T-cell therapy, even though I would say in our experience, we don't find that to be true. Mm -hmm. You know, you touched on something that I think is incredibly important is because these things are being marketed to, oh, this is going to be the community's ability to use a CAR T-like product. And I worry that they're going to be going directly to these therapies as opposed to sending patients to a CAR T center. Um, and mind you, I understand the logistics. Not everybody can get to a center that can do CAR T, but I worry that too many patients are going to be uh, given these products and then they're going to miss out on a potentially curative therapy CAR T until we have more data. I think we should, to your point, we should really prioritize the CAR T. If that's not an option, logistics, cost, whatever it is, then these these therapies could be used. Um, Tysel, any long-term responders that that you saw uh, when you treated patients? Um, yes, I mean we do have some long-term responders, but um, biologically, I mean they may be a bit different uh, than how they can because these are patients who are probably on their fourth, fifth line of therapy, which obviously screams that their disease is probably a little bit different uh, compared to, you know, some of these other patients who we already spoke, because if you can get three to four other different lines of therapy in large cell lymphoma, your disease is probably not as aggressive as some of the other ones. So I think that colors a bit of the long-term responders. So um, I think for any of us to have some encouragement, I still think, I agree with Dr. Nashar, it's very early. Um, we kind of need to wait to see you know, how these other things play out. Um, I don't think it's uh, apples to apples substitute for CAR-T, but I think we all know that a lot of these centers and patients don't want to come to academic centers, uh, whether it's traffic or whatever reason, they don't want to come. So in those cases, I do think it does provide an option for these patients to get something similar to CAR-T, uh, not necessarily a, a true CAR-T product. Um, and I would guess that in some of these patients, especially the CAR-T naive patients, I mean, especially as we see more mature data from Glowfit and Epcaritimab, that these, there will be some long-term responders in patients. Uh, and I think to the point of, you know, I think um, the companies, I say companies plural, but uh, specifically in one that we, we really do need data about, you know, stopping these treatments. I mean, I don't think indefinite therapy is probably needed in some of these patients who are in a remission and the remission is beyond, you know, two years already. I think if the glofitimab long-term response data and the epcaritimab long-term response data mirrors each other, I do think that, you know, Jimab and Abby are going to be very hard-pressed to convince people that there's a reason to continue to give their treatment indefinitely where you have another one very similar, where you don't, and you get very similar response rates. So either that speaks to their product is inferior, which I'm sure they don't want that perception out, or it's about other reasons, which, you know, again, it's, it's a negative for the company. So I do think that we need more data about stopping treatment with epcaritimab um, just because time limit is probably not, it's probably what's best for most patients that are treated and in a good response. Yeah. I mean, indefinite therapy in these patients where you don't know if it's going to be curative or not is probably not ideal. And just thinking about mechanistically, like at some point you've got to have some T-cell exhaustion just exactly. giving buy specific antibodies forever. It, to me, it doesn't make a ton of sense. So Bernie, uh, let's talk about the, the side effect profile. Sure. Um, uh, if you want to touch on the CRS rates uh, and the, the neurotoxicity or ICANS rates, um, and then, you know, uh, 
<laughs> Tysel uh, and Dr. Nashar, Dr. Phillips, both admitted these patients to our service for us to monitor all their, their side effects, right? So you, you probably have a, a couple... Uh, some couple bones pieces to pick. of information. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. Not bones <laughs> to pick, but no, just piece of information of, you know, uh, h- how we manage CRS. Yeah, um, yeah. Obviously, the protocol told us how we're supposed to, but and we didn't really like it, but we had to follow it. Yeah. So cytokine release syndrome, you know, it, it, it does occur in, you know, up to half of these patients, I'd say. But in the majority of these patients, it's low grade in nature. You know, usually it's a fever. Maybe their blood pressure drops a little bit or they're on a little bit of oxygen. But the incidence of grade three, four CRS, like we see with, you know, CAR-T and other products is exceedingly rare um, because a lot of these products, they have step-up dosing, a lot have pre-medications, some have steroids incorporated in them. And I think that that really mitigates a lot of the high-grade CRS. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the challenges with all of these different products, and when these all get approved with different recommendations of what do you do for grade one, what do you do for grade two, it becomes a giant pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> having these patients admitted and being like, okay, what protocol are they on? Yeah, do I need bad. to give Tosi for a fever or do yeah. I need to wait? Like none of it makes any sense. So I, I guess maybe we'll summarize how we approach this um, and kind of what was successful at our institution. And that's, um, we, we grade things according to the ASTCT criteria, basically, which um, you can you can look up. We could link it in the show notes. but. For low-grade reactions, grade one, two reactions, simply supportive care, uh, Tylenol, fluids work just fine. If things progress or they're not improving, that's where we're typically giving doses of steroids. You're not going to completely deplete all of their T cells with one or two doses of steroids, but you might, you know, mitigate some of that CRS. And then for higher-grade reactions, for grade three, four reactions, that's where we're typically pulling out the high-dose steroids. Um, again, you don't have to worry about destroying your million dollar CAR T cells here, um, because you're working with the patient's endogenous T cells. And then if they don't respond to that, that's where you can pull the trigger on IL-6 therapy. And I think with that strategy, we've been fairly successful. Um, and that's what we've been doing with bites. And we created our own sort of unified guideline for patients, not on clinical trials for how to manage CRS. And I would encourage your centers to do the same because it makes everybody's lives a whole lot easier when you're managing it the same way and not managing it 16 different ways for 16 different products. Yeah. So I think two major take home points. One, (laughs) we should make sure that we have a standardized approach, no matter what the product is right now, we don't have any data to say one has much more higher CRS that requires different strategies. So try to create a most, the most uniform approach so that you can educate all of your staff and the staff isn't just going to be like, you know, your, your PharmDs on service and your, your hematologist. They're also going to be night covering staff. It's going to be the emergency room. It's going to be the ICUs. It's going to be some random place that the patient shows up in the ER too, right? So we we need to keep things as standard and as easy as possible. The second uh, point to be made is that this is not CRS or ICANS like CAR-T, and therefore it does not need to be, um, you know, cookie-cutter medicine of treating it exactly the way that those um, are treating CAR-T. So uh, our threshold to um, throw in pharmacologic therapy um, 
is a little bit higher. We don't we don't throw tosi at patients just because they're fevering for a, a couple days too long. So the big question now is many of these we need to figure out how to operationalize. Um, the logistics of them as an outpatient, right? We can't be administering all these therapies in an inpatient because many centers, especially community centers, will go bankrupt because they're too expensive. Um, uh, mozinituzumab, the nice thing about the, the FDA approval was it did not require uh, a mandatory observation period, uh, whereas our other two by, uh, three bispecifics, blenitumumab, mandatory observation. Teclistimab. Teclistimab <laughs> and mul uh, multiple myeloma also has uh, a mandate. And then the, the, the melanoma drug, which is the one I'm blanking on because we don't do melanoma, also had a mandatory monitoring period. Um, so with mozinituzumab, uh, Dr. Nashar, how are you operationalizing this? Like, do you, are you still going to admit on OBS? Are you going to send them home? Are you going to, what are you doing? Yeah, I think it's, uh, as we alluded to, all the protocols were different. Um, and even if, you know, some of these don't have a mandatory hospitalization, sometimes it becomes, you know, suggested. And then you think about, well, if it's suggested, who am I going to do it in? And and when am I going to do it? And for how long? Um, just to back up a little bit, when it comes to managing CRS, I think one of the points of confusion and something we haven't talked about is that all of these drugs, all these bispecifics for DLBCL have done different strategies to mitigate some of the CRS. So some of them are IV, some are subcutaneous, which decreases peak exposure, decreases right cytokine, peak cytokine exposure, in theory, decreasing CRS and ICANN's risk. They all have step-up dosing like we talked about, but then they've also done different things with pre-medications. So a lot of them have dexamethasone pre-medication. Some of them give dexamethasone for several days after the injection. And so I think, and maybe we could talk about in a minute what we would recommend when it comes to managing CRS in a patient where you've already given dexamethasone to, and then they experience grade one or grade two CRS and they're not responding to fluid boluses or supportive care. Are we repeating the dexamethasone or is that when we would go to TOSI? Um, and even in these that have dexamethasone for several days after, you know, you see the median duration of onset within the first two days. So are you repeating dex in those patients? So I think that might be a point we can clarify in a second. But when it comes to like logistics of these, I think you need to have a standardized approach. And I think we can do these outpatient as long as we have right a protocol and a procedure. So how are, how are we going to monitor? Who's going to monitor? Do you want the patient to have blood pressure, cuff, pulse ox, and thermometer at home? Um, if they do, when do you want them to check? Do you want them to check all the time or just when they have symptoms? Probably just when they have symptoms, right? But you need all of these things in place. And then what's really been logistically challenging for us is how do we build our order sets to incorporate CRS management in a standardized way that is clear? And then how do we get these patients in for management quickly and where do they go? So how do we get them into our infusion center that can't even get patients in for just regular R-CHOP? And then, you know, um, if we don't have a chair available, do we send them to the ED. Again, we've got to educate the ED then. Do we have a bed waiting for them? So these are all things we're really working through um, to manage. And I think it's just even harder in the community. We talked about community practices might go to these bispecifics because they can't get CAR-T, but when you actually factor in all of these logistics, it may not even be easier to give a bispecific. Um, so I think if, you know, community centers can have standardized approaches and work with their local hospitals um, to figure out what they're going to do with these patients, I, I do think you can improve access. 
mic drop. Fantastic points. <laughs> I, I was like, that I, is a ramble. This is like every day of my life. This is all I that talk was about. Incredible. Oh it's literally like, okay, these these drugs, great, they they work, but like, how the heck are you gonna operationalize this in the real world? You just like threw a bomb on everybody of like how, how we're actually gonna do this. And, and and mind you, we still don't fully know. But like there are so many great points that you just said. And I will say, too, even, you know, a lot of these studies are talking about early toasty, early toasty. But if you're going to do this outpatient, a patient can't have toasty in their house. Right. <laughs> they can have a prescription for dexamethasone. And I said this the other day. But to me, it's like when you have chest pain, you call an ambulance and they tell you to chew an aspirin. If you call with any signs and symptoms of CRS, we're going to tell you swallow your dex and get in the car and get here. And then by the time you get here, that dex is in your system and we can see, right, do we need to pull the trigger on Tosi or are you getting better already? And so like, you know, this early Tosi as, you know, that's not going to work in the real world. It worked in the protocol, but when we really use these, we're going to have to actually think about what we're doing. So well I said. love that. Chew an aspirin, chew yeah. your dexamethasone. <laughs> well, I mean, you're you're giving the Tosi to prevent an administration of Tosi. <laughs> so silly. So, like, I, I completely agree with you. I think it's so well stated. These are some real challenges that everybody's going to have to figure out. And I'm sure there are a lot of centers where your patients don't live, you know, close to the hospital. You know, we get patients from the UP. For them to get down here to Michigan, they'd have to fly a helicopter down here. Like, it's just not feasible. I think yeah. a, a good aspect of these therapies, I guess, compared to something like, like Blinn, where it's continuously infused forever, um, mm -hmm. is the fact that after that initial strategy, these are often given on, you know, 21 day cycles yeah. and the incidence of CRS, either because you lose everyone who reacted um, <laughs> or, or truly the risk is highest when your disease yeah. burden is highest, which is probably the logical answer is lower as you continue to give these therapies. And so I think that first cycle is going to be a challenge. Maybe the second cycle is going to be a challenge, but after that, things do get easier, at least that's been our experience. I agree. I think that's in line, right, with our experience. Dr. Phillips, we had very, very few patients that had ongoing issues with CRS after cycle one or even early cycle two. I agree. I mean, I think all the issues we had were in the first cycle. And I will say, I think with more experience, we had better sort of anticipating who our problem patients would be, would be mm -hmm. uh, versus ones who obviously we didn't need to do much to intervene on. So um, I think in certain situations, you know who may need toasting and who won't. And I agree with you. I think the, the use of steroids is something that probably should be much more uh, regimented in sort of prevention of CRS for these patients. I guess I have a question for you. So let's say Epcrotomag gets approved, and in their protocol, they utilize three days of dexamethasone after um, the first several infusions, and you can peel it off if no incidence of CRS. If glofitimab gets approved and they didn't utilize that same strategy, would you extrapolate that preventative measure to glofitimab or do you think it's really unique to epcaritimab? No, I think by all means, I think the the days of the steroids that they use at EPCO, I mean, for that they actually use, so glofit use DEX and I think EPCO use actually prednisone for 100 milligrams. Um, by all means, I think the, the steroids, the prednisone method of giving patients several days of steroids is probably more efficacious than giving a one-time small dose of DEX and thinking that's going to cover patients uh, for the next four to five days to prevent CRS. So I think each of the drugs has a, a different pros and cons, but how they sort of manage CRS. I think 
Blowfit's sort of ability to give obinutuzumab helps in certain disease subsets, which has prevented epcaridumab from actually getting a foothold in certain other certain diseases because of that. But I do think Epco's strategy of prednisone was probably best. Uh, and probably we did a, a good job of keeping their CRS rates low and manageable uh, compared to, you know, what we may have seen if they did not have steroids uh, given concurrently for those first uh, couple of injections. So. I agree. I think, you know, when these all come out, we can look at the mitigation strategies used, but I think that something could be extrapolated to all of the bispecifics when we're thinking about how to operationalize this outpatient. It's going to be a lot of fun, right? There's uh what do we say? Five therapies coming soon. Victoria's sweating with stress because you're the one that's going to have to figure this all out for us. But no, I mean, I think this is really fun. Like this is the fun stuff of, okay, drugs just got approved. It's not just, I can send my patient to the infusion center and magically the patient gets better, right? Like there is a lot of work for all of us to figure out, um, to ensure that we're giving these safely and in an efficacious manner. So, uh, lots of fun to come. Uh, so the last thing we should touch on, and we touched on this a little bit, is CAR-T versus bispecifics. Any more to say about that piece? I think, I mean, one thing we didn't touch on yet, and we don't have to talk about a lot because nobody likes to talk about cost, um, but we yeah, know that the point. cost of CAR-T cell therapy is astronomical. We don't mm -hmm. know fully what these are going to cost in DLBCL. We know a little bit for most intuzumab, it's priced pretty comparatively to other drugs on the market per month. But I think the difference, and again, I don't think these can replace CAR-T yet at this time, but thinking f future forward, you know, I think CAR-T is a one and done. And so you pay all the costs, regardless if your patient responds or not, right? Yep. But a bi-specific, you pay per month and you pay, you know, you can stop if your patient's not responding. And so I think from a cost perspective, if we get future data that we can put them comparative to one another, um, costs might favor by specifics in that you can pull back and stop before you spend too much money in a mm -hmm. patient that's not responding or deriving benefit. Yeah, I mean, you're paying for what you get, right? So it almost has that, that built-in quality metric or that value-based payment system that we tried to do with Kimraya for ALL and it was a complete failure. Um, and so like, if your patient doesn't have a response, you just stop it. Um, question for, for Dr. Phillips here is when do you know when to quit? Right? So like normally with chemotherapy, you'd pet, you'd pet a patient after what, two or three cycles. I'm assuming you're probably doing something with these as well. Are there any like weirdness of pets because they're, these are immunotherapies. Do you see like a pet flare with these? Um, and also, at what point do you then say, oh, this bispecific is not working? I mean, there are there are reports of tumor flare with these bispecifics. I don't necessarily know if we see the same checkpoint inhibitor type responses where okay. things get bigger and then get smaller. Um, but I think theoretically it's still possible because you're getting T-cell infiltration into these tumors. Um, I will say for most of these patients with these bispecifics, um, I mean, you sort of very similar to CAR-T. If they're going to work, you're going to see something fairly quickly because of where we're using it. Um, I don't necessarily know. So we usually respond, check these patients within the first nine, first uh, three months, we get a response assessment. I, I can't think of any patient that we had in that first three months response assessment that actually uh, did not show a response that later we 
actually thought that they were actually having a pseudo progression and kept on treatment and subsequently responded thereafter. I don't think I can think of any patient in the ones we've treated who had that type of phenomenon happen, which is quite common in, in the checkpoint inhibitors. So, I think that's a like this is a good point though because we're we might take several weeks to ramp up. If you've got signs of clinical progression within the first month, do you say that they failed the bispecific, or do you just say that their disease was too aggressive to have mm -hmm. the chance to respond to it and then therefore could come back to it later? And so I think most of these studies, if you look at time to response, was two months, and that that's when you did your maybe your first disease assessment, right? But it takes you three weeks sometimes to even get to full dose. And so I think that this is going to be a really great question. And again, going back to those aggressive patients, I would hate to burn a really, you know, potentially great line of therapy if they're not the right candidate for it. But I think it's going to be really hard if we just say, well, they've only gotten two doses of full dose, but their pet shows progression. Are they failing it or you know, do they need something that works faster? And we could come back to this later. Yeah, I think a very good point is all when you look. I mean, honestly, I can only think of one patient, which was not even a DLBCL patient. It was an MCL patient who started to have signs of progression during step up, but responded once we got the full dose. I mean, so I, but I would think by the time you get the full dose in that situation, you should have some sort of sense of whether these patients are going to respond or not. Uh, but the question is, you know, how do you manage those things during that first month? Mm -hmm. um, because with Glowfit, you need that week of obinutuzumab, which is putting you back another week. Yeah, I forgot and about with that. with EPCO, I don't think any of the initial doses are very effective because they're so small. So small. Um, and that also fits with the timing of CRS because the CRS timing for that is much later than what we see with Mosin and Glowfit. I mean, it's literally day one, day eight versus everything is really on, you know, day 15 or when you have, you get full dose of in that situation. So... I mean, I think these are very good things that will become more nuanced once as we move on. But I think that what Victoria is saying to the point of it is we just need to be careful who we start these patients on and make sure we give them the best chance to try to respond to these treatments. Um, and that also comes to figuring out bendamustine is as detrimental to these mm. specifics as they are to CAR-T. So yes. I think that's a question we haven't really fully answered. None a of the sequencing question. Yeah, especially because T cells are going to be depleted for probably ever a long a year. time. Yeah. <laughs> Should you never use PBR ever again, knowing that you're going to use a bi-specific potentially, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, before we were just holding yeah. it prior to CAR T, yeah. you know, T cell collection for yeah. CAR T, but now it's like, well, if the bi-specific's an option after CAR T, should you never use it at all? Yeah. And I think the sequencing question is is there's a lot to learn. Um, and something else that we saw a lot, I don't know, Tysel, if you want to touch on, but, are, you know, after CAR-T, are you rebiopsying these patients? You know, should we be checking for CD20 expression um, or should we just go for it? Uh, do you see CD20 loss? Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, we, we you do see quite a bit of CD20 loss. I mean, I don't know if it's the CAR product or if it's what you got before the CAR, but, I mean, we've seen quite a few patients with we biopsy after CAR-T and they don't express 20. They express 19, but not 20. And it makes no sense. And whether you treat these patients with a bispecific is a question I wasn't brave enough to answer. Even though they were eligible for studies, I never treated any of these patients with a bispecific because, I mean, there's no target. It seems theory. illogical. 
You, you, yeah, you call it brave. I call it rational. It's yeah, the, so, so I think the, that's a point yeah. to clarify is that the protocols the don't require. Yeah, the protocols don't require you to show CD20 expression, and so everyone is going to want to use these regardless. But again, you know, and I think there's some data out there floating around saying that even if you don't show CD20 expression, maybe you still can respond or not. I would say that until we know concretely that it doesn't matter, that we should probably be checking again so we don't loot, burn a very good line of therapy in a patient who wasn't set up to respond to begin with. But the tumor microenvironment. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just give a uh, checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, well, guys, uh, we clearly have lots more to learn about these therapies. Um, I learned a ton uh, just by sitting with you guys. So really appreciate you guys uh, coming on the podcast. Bernie, give us like a, a very quick summary of what we, we learned today. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. So... Uh, the bispecific antibodies are coming to DLBCL, yep. and I would say response rates probably in the 50-ish percent range. Doesn't seem to be a ton of difference between the products, although we don't know, again, because they haven't been compared head-to-head. About a 30% CR rate. Maybe response rates post-CAR-T, maybe not. Durability of these responses and the types of patients that are we're seeing responses in um, we don't have a lot of data there. And I think the key with these products, they clearly have activity, right? They clearly have activity. The CRS rates are lower and the toxicity rates are lower than CAR-T. So they are going to be an option. It's just where are we going to place them in therapy? Which patients are more likely to respond than others? These are all going to be future questions for hopefully some randomized controlled trials, or if not some real world evidence um, from smart people like like Tysel and Victoria to help us answer the question of where to place these in therapy. Beautifully well said. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Phillips, Dr. Nashar. Um, thanks for teaching us. Thanks for coming on and, and teaching our audience um, on the first podcast ever where we talked about non-leukemia <laughs> slash we talked about lymphoma. So thank you both very much. Thanks no, for cheers. having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. You know, we look forward to coming back. Oh yeah. yeah, no, we we need based off of all the controversies and all the unknowns, we need to do like another ten podcast series just on DLBCL and mantle cell. <laughs> you need the mantle cell podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I need the mantle cell too. I think that's far more. I think that's far more controversial. Will we put on Bernie's hit list? Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> no way. We we, right. started to, we started to create a, a fake Twitter handle under Bernie's name and start posting controversial statements. No, please yeah, don't. Bernie's no. already been on Twitter already, so. <laughs> I love it. All right. Cheers, everybody. All right, cheers. cheers. Ciao. See you guys later.